Africa rise and shine Africa zorka Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective and we're coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. Kenyan police fire tear gas at protesters demanding election reforms. And South Africa's President Jacob Zuma begins state visit to Zambia. In economics news, sub-Saharan Africa to grow at slower rate this year. And in sports news, CAF Emergency Committee to meet in Lagos. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Zambia has lifted emergency measures which were imposed at the height of a political crisis that followed the detention of an opposition leader on treason charges. Justice Minister Given Lubinda says the measures will expire after 90 days in force. President Edgar Lungo imposed the measures on the 5th of July, following a spate of fires in the capital Lusaka and other towns. Opposition leader Hakiende Chilima was detained in April of an incident in which he allegedly failed to give way to Lungo's motorcade. He was released in August. The Electoral Commission in the Democratic Republic of Congo says polls to replace President Joseph Kabila cannot be held until at least April 2019. They were originally scheduled for November last year. Dozens of people died last year in the protest against Kabila's refusal to step down at the end of his term. Parts of the country are in the hands of insurgents who say they will not stop fighting while he remains in power. The BBC's Mary Harper reports. The Electoral Commission said problems with voter registration in conflict areas had led to the delay. But holding a poll at least two and a half years late is not acceptable to the opposition. It described the announcement as an election-killing agenda and said the population would take matters into its own hands. President Kabila insists he's not trying to cling on to power until he can find a way of removing term limits. He says he lacks the money to finance a poll in this vast, chaotic country, much of it torn apart by conflict. South Africa's ruling ANC Secretary-General Gwede Mantashe says he's waiting for an explanation on why the party's deputy president should not become its next leader. He was delivering a lecture on the centenary celebrations of former ANC President Oliver Tambo. Mantashe says where a properly planned succession strategy has not happened in the past, it has led to a disaster. He says if the party wants a woman president, it should elect her as a deputy to prepare her for the role of President. Upanga Abadaga can find the old movement says, let's overlook a sitting deputy president. Then my explanation would be no. He is weak in this, he failed in this. There must be an explanation so that the organization can be at peace with itself. 
Spanish Prime Minister Mariana Rajoy has defended his government's response to the Catalan crisis as proportionate. Rajoy earlier said that his government would ask for clarification from Catalan authorities on whether or not the region had declared independence. It follows an emergency cabinet meeting a day after Catalan leader Carles Puigdemont signed a declaration of independence but suspended its implementation to allow for negotiations. Addressing Parliament, Rajoy accused the Catalan authorities of mounting a disloyal attack on the country's constitution. We are faced with conduct and attitudes which is not part of civilized society. We are challenged and challenged in a way prior to any kind of political discussion and it is a clear contravention of uh, the coexistence between the various parts of Spain and also of the constitution. And finally, more than 200 fire engines and firefighting crews from across the U.S. have been dispatched to California to help contain the devastating wildfires raging in an area larger than Chicago. California's Governor Jerry Brown says 8,000 firefighters are battling 22 fires in eight countries. Fire officials have put the death toll at 21. The BBC's Dave Lee has more. California's apocalyptic fires are getting worse. What started on Sunday with seven large sites has become 22 huge blazes, covering more than 180,000 acres. That's an area the size of Singapore. More communities are being evacuated, including the entire city of Calistoga, one of the region's most historic and beautiful places. Firefighters are bracing themselves for more high winds. And that's the news. Headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Thank you, Anne. It's 806 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Police in Kenya used tear gas again yesterday to disperse thousands of opposition supporters in the capital, Nairobi, and in the town of Kisumu, who took to the streets to demand electoral reforms. This comes a day after opposition leader Raila Odinga announced that he was withdrawing from fresh presidential elections due later this month. Odinga withdrew from the race, citing concerns that the poll would lay would not be free and fair. Meanwhile, a Kenyan court ruled in favor of a presidential candidate who had sought to be included in the ballot for this month's repeat polls. Still on Kenya's political scene, Parliament has passed amendments to the country's election laws despite protests from the opposition. Sarah Kimani has more. In solidarity with their leader, opposition supporters poured into Nairobi's city streets, demanding reforms and a new electoral commission to oversee fresh elections. Their march to the electoral commission's headquarters, ending in clouds of tear gas smoke and ringing sounds of gunfire. Odinga's withdrawal from fresh presidential elections did not seem to dampen the mood in the opposition circles. Instead, it seemed to amplify demands for electoral reforms ahead of fresh presidential elections later this month. Raila Odinga's withdrawal, first of all, I give him congratulations. The reason why we can't go for election before the IBC is cleaned up. 
Across from here, the High Court added a twist to the upcoming presidential elections when it ruled that a Kuruo court, one of the eight presidential candidates who ran in August presidential polls, should be included in the October race. The Electoral Commission had indicated that only incumbent Uhuru Kenyatta and opposition leader Raila Odinga would run in the repeat polls. Ekuru court. Immediately they should include my name uh, in, the, in, the, in the ballot and uh, we want to engage them immediately on some of the concerns that we had raised even before uh, the August uh, 8th uh, election. Odinga withdrew from the race on Tuesday over concerns that the race would be marred by irregularities. We believe that all will be best served by NASA vacating its presidential candidature in the election scheduled for 26th October. Whether you are there or not, we are proceeding to the people who have the sovereign right to elect the leader of their choice. The political crisis heightened further when Parliament passed controversial amendments to electoral laws, which among other things indicate that if one candidate withdraws from the race, the remaining candidate will be sworn in without the country going to an election. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. Cyber security is topping discussions in Africa after Zimbabwe announced on Monday that it has established a new ministry dedicated to it. Many countries on the continent say they are already planning to follow suit and representatives at the Pan-African Parliament say they too are concerned about cyber crime in their countries. Ntakwanangadani reports from Johannesburg. In the U.S. elections, some say there was external interference which led to the surprise outcome. But the current U.S. administration has dismissed the speculations. France experienced hacking on the eve of elections. Many countries are now vigilant. And in southern Africa, Zimbabwe has dedicated a whole ministry to cybersecurity. Ghana's MP at the Pan-African Parliament, Mohamed Mubarak Muntaka, says his country has cybercrime on the radar in various departments, but it needs to be beefed up. I mean, uh, it's becoming a major security concern because... Uh, People are using uh, cyber to commit all manner of crimes, apart from the financial crimes, they are also using for terrorist activity and what have you. In Ghana, we have a minister for national security, we have the interior minister, and then we have the defense ministry. So we have the National Security Council that is set up to deal with all this. So the C, in Ghana, we see cyber as a crime. And therefore, it is part of the security measures to deal with it. So what we have, you have a DEX at the police headquarters that deals with cyber issues. The same with the military and then the national security. So last year, we tried to introduce, the government tried to introduce into that parliament we were a bit skeptical because it was to be able to, I mean, uh, eavesdrop into our phone calls and what have you, even though the bill has shown how they are going to do it, they always have to run to uh, maybe a court for a court order, but within uh, 24 hours they can do a number of things and then rush to rectify or get a court to approve what they are doing. We are a bit skeptical because we believe that the liberty of individuals is also very, very important. But for now, what they are doing is just using the gadgets. I mean, Accra is becoming more than uh, most of the big cities mounting a lot of cameras all around, checking, I mean, they're able to uh, play oversight on people's, what the activities that people are carrying out. There, we have an anti-money laundry. We have a lot of regulations that are helping them to be able to deal that, but they are dealing with it as a national security issue. 
The mountain kingdom of Lesotho is one of the countries on both the SADC and AU agenda for instability. Parliamentarians say cyber insecurity contributes to this instability and security needs to be beefed up with resources to fight cybercrime. Tabosophonia. So, but it's affecting the whole world. But now, as a small country, we haven't done much, I guess, because I'm a new member of the parliament, and even here I'm just sworn in on Monday. But that is a serious problem where I think most countries have to sit together. We have to find a way of trying to uh, rectify this. It's a serious concern to our security. The Electoral Commission of South Africa is also vigilant to developments. IEC spokesperson Terry Zelani. Just wanted to add on the issue of uh, cybersecurity. I'm sure there's a lot of anxiety in our society as a result of recent developments, um, particularly at an international level. And then therefore, as a result of this, from our side, as though, even though we are confident uh, with our systems, what we normally do ahead of every election, we get all the political parties uh, to check with their IT uh, experts our system to check the vulnerabilities. And that process helps us in terms of making sure that we close all the loopholes that are there in the system. But we have agreed as well that what we're going to be doing this time around, largely because of the anxiety that we have in our society, there is a process that we have embarked on where we are focusing on cybersecurity in the organization. And then we are saying that we are going to have to interact with yourselves, the media, and the general public in relation to the issues. The Zimbabwe government says during President Mugabe's recent visit to South Africa, cybersecurity featured high on the agenda. Ntakwanangadani, Johannesburg. Meanwhile, South African Broadcasting Corporation's Lesotho correspondent Ntakwanangadane has fled to South Africa after persistent threats against her life and safety in her home country. Ngadane has been threatened following a story she ran about the shooting of Lesotho's Prime Minister Tom Tabane's estranged wife, Dipulelo, earlier this year. Ngadane says while she has received phone calls threatening her life, a post on social media last week asking the Prime Minister's son to rape her was the last straw. Angela Bulwan reports. Ntakwanangadani has been in the media for 24 years, but now it has become almost impossible for her to do her job in her own country, especially after she reported on the murder of Prime Minister Tavani's estranged wife, Dipulelo. started with the previous government that are now the opposition and, you know, supporters saying that I must be uh, a propagating ABC propaganda and uh, some of them even going on Twitter saying that I must be supporting the ABC. That's why I report negatively, as they would say, about their government. And these are um, so-called Congress supporters at the time. Now, with the ABC in the lead again with its allies, and I see supporters of those parties now coming out and saying that I report negatively about their government because I must be supporting the Congress movement. Now, it started as that, but then it got worse and worse. Natana says journalists in her country are not able to work freely as they often face threats because of their work. She says the threats against her started as complaints, but then escalated to threats of violence, even murder, and now rape. The leader of the University of Lesotho's SRC and the All Basotho Convention Youth League, Tatoponya, wrote to a close 
group on Facebook that the Prime Minister's son, Sidi Mutabani, should rape Ngatani, and if he can't, he would help him. Bonya has now apologized. The first thing I will do is to say sorry to her and then apologize unreservedly for what I have uttered because that's wrong uh, to, to start with. And then I think as a, as a young leader, I've learned from that mistake. And then I think uh, that the path of leadership is not just being right every time. I think also to be wrong sometimes, but courage to say sorry to those who have offended uh, along the way. Sidi Mutabani disputes that journalists in Lesotho are often threatened, saying it's only Ngatani who has had to flee since the new government took over. Tabani was still angry about the way Ngatani covered Dipulelo Tabani's murder. He says Ngatani said there was speculation that the motivation behind the shooting was the divorce proceedings underway and maybe even party politics. He says that made the report one-sided and not factual. He, however, says they were both victims of Ponya's irresponsible post. I don't own Tabani an apology. I don't. And I'm never going to apologize to Ntakwan. I feel she owes me an apology. In fact, not just me. She owes the Tabane family an apology. She owns Basutu. An apology. For a bias story. The SABC released a statement saying that they were due to meet Lesotho Minister of Communications, but the minister did not show up for the meeting. SABC spokesperson Kaiser Khanyako says the broadcaster is concerned about Ngatani's safety. Yes, we were supposed to be meeting with the, the Minister of Communication from Lesotho, and at this present moment when I'm speaking to you, we're still waiting to have that meeting because we wanted to engage them about this issue and the safety of our journalists that side because it is not only about her. What will happen if we send somebody else there to go and do work? What will happen to that person? Can they guarantee the safety of this person? Because it is important for us. Meanwhile, the South African National Editors Forum is writing a letter to the UN highlighting incidences of safety concerns for journalists in the SADC region. They are also highlighting safety concerns in Lesotho, where they say the security around journalists is deteriorating. They say although they have tried to contact officials there on behalf of journalists, there has been no response. That report by Angela Bulwana in Johannesburg. Let's go back in time to today in 1984. British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher escaped an attempt on her life when an Irish Republican army bomb exploded at a hotel in Brighton, killing five people. That's today in history in the year 1984. We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspectives. In 1984, in its January 8th statement, the African National Congress Liberation Movement Under the leadership of its president, Oliver Reginald Tambo, a strong advocate for gender equality, made a call to the progressive peoples of the world to declare the year as the Year of the Woman. For feedback and questions relating to our show, tweet us at Rise Africa or at Channel Africa One. You can also email us at info at channelafrica.co.za or WhatsApp on 277-6300-3327 or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Channel Africa from an African perspective. 
This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. It's 8.20 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. The close relations between South Africa and Zambia should translate into tangible benefits for the people of the two countries. This is the message from both sides as President Jacob Zuma prepares to undertake a two-day state visit to Zambia. The two countries forged relations during the struggle days and the ANC's longest-serving leader, Oliver Tambo, set up base in Lusaka. Tambo will be honoured as the house in which he used to stay will be unveiled as a national heritage site. Amos Pajo reports. They are putting final touches to a house which will be turned into a national heritage site. This is the house where Oliver Tambo lived for 22 years, repainted in ANC colors. It's a reminder of the journey the governing party and the country undertook to achieve South Africa's freedom. And the event happens during the month when Tambo would have turned 100. Presidential spokesperson Dr. Bongani Ngulunga elaborates. Zambia, for a very long time, housed um, a lot of our leaders, people that we see in government, in cabinet, people that we see providing leadership in the private sector, in business, in civil society, and and the, 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 the freedom that we have as Africans uh, was paid for by huge sacrifices, not only by South Africans, but by people of Zambia, of SADC, of the African continent, and the world. And in a sense, the president will be coming here um, to, to this house to say thank you to the government and the people of, of, of Zambia, but also to recognize the contribution that O.R. Tambo and, the contrib- and his generation made to the liberation and the freedom that we enjoy in South Africa today. It is Oliver Tambo and his comrades who made it possible for South Africa to take its place on the African continent, both politically and economically. The more than 120 South African businesses in Zambia bear testimony to this. Last year alone, 30 billion rand worth of exports from South Africa went to Zambia. Zambia's Foreign Affairs Minister, Harry Kalaba, says prospects of growing the economic cooperation further remains high. The two leaders will consider the outcomes of the second session of the Zambia-South Africa Joint Commission for Cooperation, which took place from 9th to 11th October 2017, and deliberated on cooperation in political, diplomatic, economic, social, defense, and security matters. As you may be aware, Zambia and South Africa are both members of the SADC Double Troika in their capacities as incoming chair of SADC Organ on Politics, Defense, and Security, and chairperson of SADC, respectively. It is therefore important that the two countries confer on matters of mutual interest in the region. This visit is important to Zambia's developmental agenda and the implementation of the seventh national development plan, which requires strategic partnerships with the international community to achieve the ultimate goal of a diversified and resilient economy for sustained growth and social economic development. As President Zuma lands here, he is sure of a warm reception 
in a place he and many others once called home, but he will be aware that despite the countries having gained political freedom, more still needs to be done towards attaining economic freedom. I'm Amos Pao in Lusaka, Zambia. Kosa historian Mda Mda was, has warned South Africans that if land is not quickly returned back to the indigenous owners, democracy will, ha- will negatively haunt its custodians. Mda was speaking at the 14th National Oral History Conference in Mtata in the Eastern Cape Province. The, conf- the conference seeks to honor Liberation stalwart Oliver Reginald Tambo under the theme Oliver Reginald Tambo in memoriam, reminiscing on a centenary of struggle, true leadership and leadership values of a liberation stalwart. Our reporter Ngulu Legunyembezi has more. The National Oral History Program for South Africa is mandated by Cabinet for the Department of Arts and Culture to spearhead a program that seeks to yield the data that will be added to the information already existing in the country's archival holdings. The information and knowledge is crucial to the restoration and sustenance of human dignity of many millions of people which was ravaged by the colonialism and apartheid. 94-year-old historian Mdamda narrated brutal tactics inflicted by the colonialists back in the 1800s where they forcefully grabbed the land and killed kings as they later named Kosa-based towns with colonial names. He believes that South Africa is not doing enough to bring back the land to the people. We must expedite land reform. The question of land reform is not an option. It is imperative. The question of land is a difficult topic for various reasons. We have been vacillating prevaricating and chidilly darling and shilly shalling for how many years we are sitting on a ticking bomb and we will be overtaken by events Mta says it's a myth that South Africa would ever be renewed Mta says it's a myth that South Africa would ever be a renewed socio-economic and political outlook without dealing away with the rooted apathetic pillars if we think as we have been doing for years we can build a new South Africa on the foundations of the old, then we are are deceiving ourselves. If we want now to build a new South Africa, we must destroy that foundation and pull down the pillars that on which that society rested. Traditionalist Chief Zolile Benzmamacha says the damage caused by the colonialists in South Africa is immeasurable and government must fast track the process of renaming towns and cities like Grahamstown, Queenstown, East London and many more. We must not be apologetic about consciously and deliberately taking a decision to restore the indigenous names that are consistent with the architectural reality of our endogenous social milieu. We need to extricate ourselves from the jaws of colonial control and manipulation and desist the temptation of being containerized in the artificial cadastral boundaries of coloniality. Chief Benzmamacha says there are realities that forced liberation stalwarts like Oliver Rizal Tambo, Nelson Mandela, Sisulu and Mpegi, among others, decided to stand up and fight in- and fight injustices. These are the historical realities that shaped and molded 
the revolutionary spirit in the legendary giant Oliver Tambo, the courage to confront the most inhuman system that was declared a crime against humanity by the United Nations. It is therefore incumbent upon the current generation to live up to the values that inspired legends like Tambo, Mandela, Sobukwe, Biko, and a long list of unsung heroes and heroes. The oral history conference was also attended by deners from various schools in the Ortambo region where they debated a number of issues around the liberation stalwart Oliver Regional Tambo. I'm Kurule Gunyambezi, Eastern Cape. Let's go back in time to today in 2002. Bombs blamed on Al-Qaeda-linked militants destroyed a nightclub on the Indonesian island of Bali, killing 202 people, including 88 Australians and 7 Americans. That's today in history in the year 2002. 16 days to go to the 100th birthday of the late Reginald Oliver Tambo. Hashtag Oliver Tambo 100. It is 8.28 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Thousands of people at Mosimbao da Prera north of Mozambique are living in fear following an attack that left seven people 17 people dead including three police officers the attacks are believed to be politically motivated but home affairs department spokesperson Inacio Dina has refuted those reports more than 50 people have been arrested since the attack a week ago Abongile Dumako reports many of the residents here in Mosim Wadapraya say things have drastically changed since the attack they say they are now living in fear. Reports suggest that gunmen in different areas started shooting indiscriminately, leaving 14 civilians and three police officers dead. Locals, including school-going children, have appealed for calm. During the preliminary investigation on the incident, four weapons were seized from the suspects who are all locals. Home Affairs spokesperson Inashio Dina is adamant that calm and normality will be restored in the country. He says these attacks are aimed at derailing government's efforts into bringing stability in Mozambique. Dina says the attackers are offered money to carry out attacks on innocent people in the process dent the country's image. Meanwhile, a local councillor, Selmira da Silva, says things are gradually getting back to normal. She says she has visited the affected areas and has assured the residents. It remains unclear whether these attacks are politically motivated and authorities are looking into the matter. Home Affairs spokesperson Inashio Dina has ruled out the possible involvement of Islamist groups believed to be from the neighboring Tanzania. I'm Abongile Dumago in Mosimwa Daprayer, Mozambique. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headline, Zambia lifts emergency measures which were imposed at the height of a political crisis that followed the detention of an opposition leader on treason charges. The DRC's Electoral Commission says polls to replace President Joseph Kabila cannot be held until April 2019 and the South African National Editors Forum 
strongly condemns a threat on the South African Broadcasting Corporation's Lesotho correspondent Ndakwana Ngatane. She has fled to South Africa after she received rape and death threats through social media. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. For feedback and questions relating to our show, tweet us at Rajshine Africa or at Channel Africa One. You can also email us at info at channelafrica.co.za or WhatsApp on 277-6300-3327 or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Channel Africa from an African perspective. We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspectives. South Africa's Finance Minister Malusi Kigaba says he directed a forensic audit of the country's public investment corporation to ensure transparency and providing assurances to pensioners who have their assets invested with the fund. He was speaking exclusively with SABC News on the sidelines of the International Monetary Fund and World Bank meetings in Washington, where he is also due to meet all three major credit ratings agencies amid continued concerns of additional downgrades. Speaking to our correspondent, Sean Bryce-Pease, Gigaba urged the public not to see his actions as it relates to the PIC as conspir- conspiratorial or malicious. Gigaba arrived in Washington just as the IMF cut South Africa's growth forecast to 0.7%, despite Treasury's estimate of 1.3% growth and an uptick in the global economy to the tune of 3.6% for 2017. We don't think we're going to grow at 1.3%. We also don't think we are going to reach our revenue um, our revenue targets, there is certainly going to be a shortfall in terms of revenue targets, which means that we are in a really tight situation. You're we talking need about taxes to. Now, right? I'm talking about taxes because when the economy is has slowed down um, at the rate that it has, it, it has an impact on um, our revenue base. He's already met with ratings agency S&P and will also meet Moody's and Fitch later this week. There are challenges. And, 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 and those challenges have been there for quite a, a considerable period of time. What the ratings agencies refer to as political risks arising from the ANC's elective conference, the uncertainty as to who is going to emerge as the next leader of the African National Congress. But we, we, what we say is that from where we stand, the, the, the political risks are, are not as adverse as they are being made out to be because ultimately South Africa is a democratic country, the ANC is a democratic organization. It does mean that after every five years there is going to be leadership contestations. Gigaba dismissed a figure of 100 billion rand from the PIC to supposedly bail out state-owned enterprises as fabrication. SAA alone, you're talking about between 10 and 13 billion rand 
um, SAPC has not requested recapitalization, but they've requested uh, a government guarantee. The South African Post Office has requested about 3.7 billion rand, and all of that, putting SAPC aside, mm. just SAA and ESCOM will be recapitalized within the budget ceiling that we have set. And so it will be a budget neutral. Now, if you add, let's say, 13 billion rand and, and, and uh, 3.7 that are required by uh, SAA and the post office, it doesn't even arrive at 100 billion rand. So I don't know where that figure came from. We also pressed him on his reasons for a forensic audit of the Public Investment Corporation. The concerns which have been raised um, must not be dismissed as, as, as malicious or in, as, as conspiratorial. Mm-hmm. There are genuine concerns which have been raised. It's necessary that the PIC should demonstrate in a transparent manner that there is no bad investments that they are making. There are no bad investments they are making, but that they should also demonstrate that these concerns which are being raised have, have no basis. And, and that can be provided not through simply dismissing maliciously the concerns which have been raised, but through providing facts, putting the facts on the table, being transparent with the, both government and the South African public so that everybody can have the comfort they deserve. The PIC oversees the biggest fund in Africa, managing some 1.9 trillion rand in assets, mainly belonging to the Government Employees Pension Fund. I'm Sherwin Bryce-Bees in Washington. The ECOWAS Regional Court of Justice is to adopt arbitration as an alternative to dispute resolution in the quest to make business activities much more easier and ranker-free in West Africa. The court, which has been handling cases in the region, including the case of unlawful detention of the Biafran secessionist Mnamdi Kanu against the Nigerian government, sees this method as an alternative step to dispute resolution. Channel Africa's Collins Atto reports from Lagos. The court opened its 2017-2018 legal year with a decision to adopt arbitration as an alternative course of dispute resolution so as to make it easier for foreign investors to do business in West Africa. At commencement of proceeding, the president of the Community Court of Justice, Jerome Traoré, speaking in French, said it was time the court determined in concrete terms the content of its mandate on arbitration. In an address at the session, Dayo Akwata, who stood in for the Attorney General of the Federation and Nigeria's Minister of Justice, says the court can collaborate with the already existing international legal body on arbitration in commercial issue to make things easier for ECOWAS region. It is indeed a novel idea, most welcome development that the CCG is seeking to promote alternative this poor resolution which is the which is for the benefit of the entire ECOWAS community and in this quest the CCG may also wish to partner with the regional center for international commercial arbitration legal but the major concern is that despite the court having been in existence for a while now only little is known about this function by very few citizens of the region Adekule Ogunsoya of the Nigerian Ministry of Foreign Affairs says that is very regrettable how are we going to say as of now that we have less than 400 cases that have been treated brought to the court. We have 350 million people in West Africa. Have we ever thought of it that the, the court is not well known to Africans? Now that more attention is being given to the court's function, 
and with a view to removing the trauma of long legal tussle in the conventional court, the president of the Association for the Promotion of Arbitration in Africa, Gaston Dowaini, says it's now left for the ECOWAS Community Court of Justice to take advantage of the new trends in commercial arbitration. It's up to the court now, taking into consideration all the other aspects and its agenda to do what it has to do in order to implement this arbitration function. Arbitration is an alternative dispute resolution system which allows parties in a dispute to resolve contending issues without resorting to the conventional court for settlement. It gives room for the arbitrator to make offers which is legally binding and enforceable in any court of competent jurisdiction. It is fast, inexpensive and very confidential. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Atohengbe for Channel Africa News. States which practice the death penalty often fail to release basic details of executions, even concealing them from prisoners' family members. That was one of the details discussed at the event, Transparency and the Death Penalty, held at UN headquarters this week to mark World Day Against the Death Penalty. James Cornell is a lawyer from the United States who represents one of the six men facing the death penalty in the U.S. who are being held at the Guantanamo Bay detention center in Cuba. He explained to UN Radio's Matt Wells what had happened to his client. I don't speak for the United States, but only for my own client, uh, Amaro Bellucci. Amaro Bellucci is best known as uh, the character who was tortured for the first 30 minutes in the movie Zero Dark Thirty. He was held incommunicado in a CIA black site from 2003 to 2006, and then in 2006 was moved to Guantanamo Bay. In 2011, He was charged with alleged war crimes connected to the attacks of September 11th, and the case has been going on since that time. You came to the UN today to speak on this uh, this event about abolishing the death penalty. What was the main message that you wanted to convey? The focus of the conference at the UN was the question of transparency and death penalty. And we heard about a lot of different aspects. From the United States, we heard about the use of security laws like classification to keep evidence uh, away from defense attorneys, even those like myself who have a security clearance. In other parts of the world, we heard about lack of transparency in who was convicted, who was executed, and in some situations, not even telling the families of those who were executed of the execution until after that time. I mean, how corrosive is this lack of transparency? You know, you said that the U.S. has abandoned its responsibility to transparency and accountability. In what ways? The whole Guantanamo Bay military commission system, which doesn't charge everyone at Guantanamo Bay, just some men who are there, was set up to cover up evidence that the United States had used torture and to provide impunity for the torturers. The, that system keeps information away from defense counsel who might be able to use it. And a perfect example just with some numbers is the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence did a review of the torture program, the, the famous torture report. They reviewed 6.2 million documents, but less than 15,000 documents have been provided to the defense. And those documents have all dates, names, and locations stripped out of them. What, in your view, needs to change in terms of U.S. policy towards Guantanamo and to bring the U.S. more into line with uh, international standards of human rights as regards torture and, and the death penalty. The core thing that needs to change around Guantanamo is the government's policy of 
delaying, denying, and degrading information about its own investigation of the case. Ordinarily, in any criminal case, the taking of statements from the defendant, the investigation of evidence, searches, witnesses are all pretty much shared between the two parties. Here, the United States has taken a strategy of hiding as much of that information as possible so that it can protect the people who are involved in torture. There are a number of different agencies that are involved. I mean, the Department of Defense has really been carrying the water for other agencies, for intelligence agencies, in this prosecution. What it means is that instead of using the ordinary court system that complies with the international standards and the own constitutional standards in the United States, the United States has chosen to set up this special military court to try civilians, which is very, very unusual. One of the reasons is because of the interagency process where some people want information to come out, some other agencies don't want information to come out, and so they feel that in a military commission they can tightly control the information. What kind of signal does that send to the rest of the world? There's a terrible signal that the United States is sending to the rest of the world that it's okay to try civilians in extraordinary military courts. But even worse is the fact that the United States has declared that those military commissions are not fair enough to try U.S. citizens. So it means that there's a two-tier system of justice, one for U.S. citizens and one for everybody else in the world. And in terms of the U.N., is there any more pressure that the U.N. can bring to bear on large, powerful governments like the U.S. to change their policies as regards Guantanamo and, uh, and the death penalty? Especially around transparency issues, there's a lot that the international community can do. There are observers who are allowed to go to Guantanamo to uh, see the trial. And in fact, France has sent at some, on some occasions an observer to the trial of al-Nashiri, one of the six men who's charged uh, in Guantanamo Bay and facing the death penalty. But otherwise, Guantanamo military commissions, as opposed to Guantanamo indefinite detentions haven't received a lot of attention from the international community. And the international community could do a lot to at least find out what's going on at Guantanamo and bring it to the attention of the rest of the world. Are there any specific things that entities within the UN can do to help yes. bring that about? The, some entity within the UN or another international organization could easily send observers to the trial at Guantanamo in the way that many countries in the world expose their trials to observers. Those observers are neutral and they report on what's happening and perhaps make an evaluation of its fairness and its transparency because if no one knows what's happening, you'll never have transparency. And what are the chances of your client eventually having a fair trial, do you think? I don't know whether there will ever be a tr fair trial at Guantanamo. It really depends on whether the United States decides to share the information that's needed for both sides to, to join the issue and have a fair trial, or whether it continues its current policy of delaying, denying, and degrading information about torture. That was James Cornell, a lawyer from the U.S. who represents one of the six men facing death penalty in the U.S. and he was speaking to UN Radio's Matthew Wells. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lohoku. Good morning. Kenyan stocks and bonds have fallen after opposition leader Raila Odinga pulled out of a repeat presidential election set for August the 20, or rather October the 26th. The all-share index dropped 0.67% and the blue-chip index 1.41% on Wednesday. 
Odinga, who successfully challenged the August 8th re-election of President Duhuru Kenyatta last month, said the repeat poll should be cancelled and a fresh election held after the election board has carried out reforms. Sub-Saharan Africa's economy is growing more slowly this year than previously forecast, largely due to weak investment and productivity. In a report to the World Bank, a forecast the growth in the region to be 2.4% in 2017, down from 2.6% that it projected in April. But growth is seen rising to 3.2% in 2018 and 3.5% in 2019. Zambia, Tanzania and Kenya will next month hold a financiers conference in Livingstone to raise the financing for the remaining sections of the Zambia-Tanzania-Kenya power interconnector project. The project aims to interconnect the three countries but will also create a link between the Southern African power pool and the East African power pool, making it possible to transmit power from Cape to Cairo. This is according to a report issued by Ministers of Infrastructure responsible for transport, energy and the ICT in the common market for Eastern and Southern Africa region. Comesa at the conclusion of the annual meeting last week in Lusaka. South Africa's finance minister, Malusi Gigaba, says a government's financial support for the SABC will depend on the public broadcaster establishing proper governance and leadership structures. He was speaking on the sidelines of the IMF World Bank meetings in Washington. Gigaba has conceded that several state-owned enterprises in South Africa have been struggling with leadership problems. I am in constant communication with the Minister of Communications about the SAPC and that whatever support will be provided to SAPC must follow clear steps to establish proper and good governance, to establish proper and good leadership for the public broadcaster, and then we will support. You see, you can't just give money to an institution which doesn't have proper leadership because you don't know what that support is going to end up doing. You need to have the confidence that whatever support you provide to the public broadcaster is going to be utilized for the right reasons to bring the public broadcaster back to operational and and financial viability. Toyota Motor Corporation is planning to halve the number of car models it sells in Japan to about 30 by 2025 to focus on more popular models in a shrinking market. The automaker currently offers about 62 car models in Japan, including the Prius Gasoline Hybrid and the Aqua Compact Hatchback. Auto sales in Japan have been falling as the population rapidly ages, while young people are losing interest in car ownership. The U.S. dollar trades at 13.58 in South Africa. It's at 10.22 in Botswana and at 9.59 in Zambia. It's also trading at 0.75 to the British pound and 0.84 to the euro. Gold $1,294, platinum $930 an ounce. The price of brand crude oil is at $56.66 a barrel. I'm Tabi Solohoko for Channel Africa. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati.
First up in our sports update this hour, we begin with rugby news. South African rugby has confirmed that Springbok forwards coach Johan van Gran has been released from his contract and that he will join Irish province Munster as their new head coach. Van Gran spent the last six seasons as Springbok forwards coach. He was first appointed in the role before the start of the 2012 test season by former Springbok coach Haneke Meyer, with whom Van Gran has enjoyed a close working relationship at provincial and national level. A 37-year-old Van Gran also worked with Meyer at the Bulls, where he was part of the team that won the Super Rugby title on three occasions. Boxing News, South Africa's reigning world boxing organization, WBO bantamweight champion Zolan Lasbontete, is disappointed that his fight against Boniso Gonya is going to take place overseas. Eastern Cape Province Bontete will make his first defense of the WBO title against Gonya from Tuba in South Africa's Guazunatal Province at the SSE Arena in Belfast, Northern Ireland, on the 18th of November. Honestly speaking, I thought this fight would happen here in South Africa, but unfortunately it's happening overseas, and, and I believe uh, that's the most important thing, that two South African fighters are fighting outside the country, and they are representing the country, let alone the fact that they are fighting each other. But it's a good fight, and I believe uh, it's going to put up the flag very high. The support base of this fight uh, would have been huge if, if the fight was here in South Africa. And now we are fighting outside of the country, and there's not much of uh, of supporters that know much about Boniso. There's, there's, there's few of that knows me, but uh, I believe uh, everyone is, is, is going to support, and I hope the TV, the TV will broadcast the fight. Meanwhile, Dede has admitted that the Gonya, who is the reigning WBO intercontinental bantamweight champion, is a closed book to him. However, Dede maintains that that does not bother him at all. Usman Niso is a closed book to me, but uh, that's, not, that's not a surprise because I used to fight well-experienced fighters that I don't know much about. But uh, I'm, I'm a flexible fighter and, and I've been around in the sport of boxing for quite a long time now. So it won't give me any problems, the fact that I don't know much about him. I know he has fought few fights here in South Africa and yeah, I believe my manager is looking for those fights. So uh, it won't be a problem to me. In football news, ex-FIFA Secretary-General Jerome Valk appeared in the Court of Arbitration for Sport in Lausanne yesterday to appeal his 10-year ban from soccer. He said it took a second to destroy his reputation and that he was not going back to football. Can you, it takes years to create uh, to make your reputation. It uh, creates uh, one second to destroy it, and that's where I am, uh, and I am living uh, uh, in peace with my family, and that's the only one, uh, I would say, thing which uh, remain strong in, in my world, and that's what I will protect. The Frenchman, whose job was to ensure the smooth running of FIFA, and in particular its flagship World Cup tournament, was right-handed man to now ban President Seb Blatter before both were embroiled in a corruption scandal which swept soccer's governing body in 2015. Valky was found guilty by FIFA Ethics Committee of Misconduct over the sale of World Cup tickets, abuse of travel expenses, attempt to sell TV rights below their market value, and destruction of evidence. He was initially banned for 12 years, reduced to 10 by FIFA's own appeal committee last year. In Nigeria, the Emergency Committee of the Confederation of African Football, CAF, which is about the most powerful panel in African football, will hold a meeting in Lagos on the 14th of October. The CAF Emergency Committee, which is chaired by CAF President Ahmad Ahmad, comprised of three vice presidents of CAF as members, as well as Nigeria Football Federation President Amuju Pinik, Liberia Football Association President Hassan Musability, and CAF Referees Committee Head Suleiman Hassan Waberi. 
And lastly, American Venus Williams was knocked out in the second round of the Hong Kong Open by 19-year-old Naomi Osaka. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. Kenyan police fire tear gas at protesters demanding election reforms. And South Africa's President Jacob Zuma begins state visit to Zambia. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzora Magaza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Wiseman Mangele, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency... 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Lesejo with a track titled Mambe. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah.